Hi, I'm Bob Sewell. I'm a lawyer. In fact, I'm a partner at the law firm of Davis Miles McGuire Gardner. I started this podcast because my clients always ask me, is that even legal? I want to discuss on this podcast how the law affects us and changes our daily lives. I hope you enjoy the show. I hope it is meaningful to you, and I hope you learn from it. Thank you. Today on the show, we have Jeff Blyce. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. It's great to be here. You know, you have the gift of foresight, and that's why I wanted to have you on the show, because you have an uncanny ability to be at the right place at the right time. And I, I attribute this, if just by looking at your resume, you could see this, your resume, you could see this. But I attribute this to the gift of foresight. And so I want to talk about what's happening in the law and where we think it's going to go. Let me give you an example about you know, some of your gifts. For example, you were a... You were the chief legal counsel, White House counsel, when Obama became president. And that tells me that you knew the right people. You knew which bus to get on and where it was going. You were also the ambassador to Australia. You were chairman of the board of of a major corporation. And you've been the CEO of a major law firm. And all these things tell me that you know where things are going. So I want to talk about future of the law. So thank you for coming on. Oh, no. Well, it's nice to be on. Although I, I, I don't attribute any of this to foresight. I think uh, I, I have all the wrong instincts, which is, you know, most people when there's a fire, they run the other way. I actually run into fires. So, you know, I end up being in interesting places just because uh, I, I lack the gift of self-preservation. <laughs> you know, one of the things that you're doing right now is you're working for a car company called Cruise, and this is self-driving car technology. Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested in this because the, of the tradition in tort law, if Bob Sewell is driving a car and I careen into the car in front of me, I cause that accident. And if I caused injuries, the tradition is Bob Sewell should suffer, not just the person who is injured. I should pay for the damage and injuries I caused to that person. Mm -hmm. And that's a traditional tort model. And we've seen this all over the place. And, And the whole cottage industry and the law is built up around it. But now we have all these technologies coming out these self-driving technologies, these accident avoidance technologies. And it begins to make me wonder, who's at fault? If the self-driving car gets into an accident, Mm -hmm. who's at fault? Who pays? If there's injuries, who do we blame? Where is the law going on this? Yeah, no, I think that's the, those are the interesting questions that got me to um, step into this role because uh, we're in a whole new space than than you and I have been in in our entire legal careers, and things that we took for granted and things that were seemed obvious because there was a tradition, as you said, um, are now changing dramatically. And I think this is like 1920s. So 1920s, um, there wasn't this sense of well, you know, we have a strict product liability regime, or we have negligence, and what are the elements of negligence, and how who's going to decide, and what's 
appropriate compensation and um, car accidents. I mean, they had they had been in horses and horses and buggies up until relatively recently. And then these things started driving on the road. And before you knew it, they said, well, first we have to have roads <laughs> and then we have to have signs and we have to have um, regulations and we have to have a body to check the um, uh, the safety of vehicles. And we also have to have a training regimen for drivers. There was a whole, I mean, a whole regulatory regimen that you and I just took for granted um, started somewhere and only, you know, a hundred years ago. And at that time, they built it from the ground up. I think we're going to be looking at something similar. Um, there will be an attempt initially to adapt the current rules to this new technology, but it just won't make sense um, because, for one thing, you won't have drivers. Uh, so, you know, how do you how do you ascribe negligence to someone who's just sitting in the back of the vehicle? Right. Um, and then, um, to the extent that people want to. Uh, I don't know, a, apply some some liability to these vehicles if they're dramatically reducing the number of accidents and saving a lot of lives by virtue of using this new technology, yeah. um, government's going to want to encourage it. So they're not going to want to punish you for accidents that are um, uh, still regrettable and inevitable, but at a much, much lower rate than human drivers. So my guess will be no one's going to put a vehicle on until we can perform at superhuman level. We can drive better than a human being would and reduce the number of injuries and accidents. And then um, between now and that date, whenever that date comes, uh, we've got to get to work on developing what the appropriate uh, you know, rules of the road will be. Because if we don't, other countries will, and they'll get an advantage over the U.S. I totally agree. You know, one of my friends does injury law and he started looking at, and you have to know that he's a technology guy. He's yeah. someone who's constantly interested in what's new, what's, what's uh, happening in the world. And he comments to me, my job will become obsolete. You, yeah, I, no, I mean, <laughs> I think there's some concern about it. And one of the reasons why this likely will not adapt as quickly as it ought to be, is that there are a lot of vested interests that are making money in the automobile insurance industry, which again, didn't exist before automobiles. And um, uh, all, all sorts of people in the, in the legal space, not just folks who traditionally work on um, automobile uh, uh, settlements and, and, and um, you know, accident recovery, but also drunk driving and a whole bunch of other things that are, that are in that space, as well as a number of different kinds of lawyers who, you know, work in collateral spaces relating to um, human driving. Whereas now we'll be moving into a completely different space. And I think, you know, if you've got large enough fleets, um, you'll likely have um, companies developing their own way of compensating riders uh, that may have a you know, dramatic impact on the insurance industry. Tell me about that. What, what are you thinking about? No, I think there's going to be a regulatory desire to encourage this kind of technology eventually because it is going to save lives. And the more vehicles there are on the road and the more they're learning and teaching themselves and training themselves and, and connecting to other vehicles, 
um, using their sensors, the safer and safer driving will get. So there'll be a regulatory pressure for people to go into this space, and that will give um, um, larger companies the capacity to do their own form of um, compensation, where they'll be able to adequately, you know, much better predict the likelihood of certain kinds of injuries, mitigate the um, the risks associated with them, adapt their, you know, vehicles that they own um, to um, uh, to reduce injuries and to ensure themselves in a way with proper reserves that they make more money than, than or they save more money than they would if they were paying for traditional insurance. So I, I just see the, the, the market changing fairly dramatically, um, just as the market changed fairly dramatically 100 years ago. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about that. I mean, we, we're so used to it a certain way. We're so used to paying uh, the insurance and to the mitigate our risks when we're on the road. And, and I really am looking forward to, uh, frankly, letting someone take over on the drive. Yeah, yeah. No, look, I used to be an ambassador. I'll tell you, life is a lot better in the backseat. <laughs> It is. And when you think about what this will mean for people's lives, I mean, obviously, the most important thing is reducing the number of accidents and injuries and, and everything associated with it, you know, lost, lost time with family and friends work while you're while you're recovering or just dealing with a collision, that sort of thing. But then you add to it just reducing all the stress of grinding through traffic and and, and, and having to deal with that loss of productivity or just loss of relaxation. If you want to just chill out in your car, have a meal, watch a movie, whatever. Uh, and, and then that doesn't even get into the fact that our vehicles, for example, are all, you know, electric vehicles. So better for the environment. And, and then you, um, if, if you're using ride hail services, that sort of thing, you're going to need far fewer parking spaces and you could literally liberate um you know areas the size of manhattan um, acres, in, acres in, of real acres estate. and acres and acres in um in major metropolitan areas um where you can have parks again you know you can you could have in i think they said that in manhattan alone you could have a new central park that's amazing uh, yeah let me turn your your mind and your attention to um, issues involving access to justice. Mm-hmm. When you were California State Bar President, you, it was back in 2008. Yeah. And the, the t- economy, of course, was on a free-for-all. And one of the things you said in, in an article you wrote during the period, and this is not an exact quote, but you said something to the effect of, lawyers, if we don't change, if we don't somehow create access to justice, ways for more average people to get legal services, then the economy and the world's going to change around us. And, and it really struck me when you said that, because I think it's, it, it's right. And I'm seeing this in our practice. We see this w- with competition from, you know, legal service providers online, um, all sorts of alternative legal services are coming up. I'm seeing state bars make attempts to uh, push back at the cost of legal services. Where do you see this going? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that what we've demonstrated is that the model that worked up to a point um, is unsustainable. It's not, it's not working now, and there's, 
no way to make that old model work again. Um, and the old model was basically uh, that lawyers would charge, um, you know, uh, fees that were affordable to not only wealthy people, but the middle class as well. And that there would be a relatively small group of people who would require legal aid services. And that could be met through government funding and through pro bono services by um, the legal profession, which, you know, because it's a profession, felt that that um, providing sufficient pro bono was, you know, was, was part of its responsibility. Um, and uh, as you look at the growing need for legal services, um, the drying up of federal funding, the um, economics pushing um, law firm um, um, fees in a, in a very different direction to a point where the middle classes as neglected as um, the you know groups that we, we would traditionally have thought of as um, indigent and in need of legal services. Um, the rates at which they're able to access legal services are about the same now. Uh, and uh, the, the system just is broken down. So we have to come up with a new model. Um, you're seeing innovation with things, as you said, like online services and self-help um, but that's not really going to solve the problem either. Part of it is the state bars have to have to adapt. Um, you know, just recently in California, uh, I, I had pressed along with many others for the uh, Supreme Court to reduce the 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 the, um, uh, the standard that had to be achieved on their exam in order to um, practice law in order to pass the bar, and the reason was. Um, we had a higher standard than places like New York and many others. And the, you know, and there wasn't any evidence that we had better legal professionals than those other states did. The only thing we were doing was reducing the number of people who could assist. And, and it had a disproportionate effect on people who were more likely to be providing legal services in um, rural areas and to people who are, you know, are, are not receiving adequate um, services. A second thing we need to do is make it possible for lawyers not to have to go through three years and spend whatever it is now, $70,000 a year, racking up these huge um, debts before they can practice law, uh, because then they're going to have to go into some kind of practice that will allow them to at least pay off their debts. Uh, and it moves them away from the kind of practice that most people need you know, where we have the biggest um, um, shortages of lawyers are things like family law, which is incredibly important to people's lives. Um, yeah. But also things like just, you know, credit card debt and, and issues like that, which are not lucrative. Immigration law. I mean, these are things that affect people's ability to, you know, where they're going to live and, and, you know, where they can be with their families. And you know, these, these are critical issues where, in some cases, 90% can't access a lawyer. Uh, I think a third thing is going to be in terms of um, uh, there will have to be some equivalent for civil law of what we have in criminal law, where you have a right to an attorney if you can't afford one in, um, in the criminal context. In some civil aspects, some civil cases, it's just as important. If you're talking about custody, if you're talking about your own liberty, um, these are the, yeah, the these are 
just as important as you know criminal cases and so i think there's going to be a movement for there to be a right to counsel in those sorts of situations that would be funded by the government funded by the state uh and then finally <laughs> my last my last suggestion is that we should be thinking about cases in which dispute resolution could be accomplished without lawyers at all. Um, in many cases, you could have a you know, a smart person like you, Bob, who, who has a general understanding of legal concepts, but more than anything is just a common sense person who could bring two people together in a room and essentially resolve their dispute without, without an adversarial process. Uh, in Canada, they have a lot of those types of proceedings, particularly in family law, and they work very well. You were the chairman of the board at Pacific Gas and Electric Company during a very critical time period. They were going through a bankruptcy. Um, And I couldn't imagine the pressure that that would have been because that's a major corporation. America has depended on that corporation for a number of years. It's a major employer. Um, One of the things that we're looking at now because of COVID and also, you know, some other economic pressures like the pending trade war. One of the things we're looking at now is where could bankruptcies go? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, this, this was a very unusual situation. I, I was, I came in uh, from the outside. There had already been uh, a bankruptcy at, at, you know, PG&E had gone into bankruptcy after there had been a number of wildfires that had created potential liability for the company that were greater than its assets. Uh, and based on that, they'd sought bankruptcy protection. And I was drawn to it for a couple reasons. One is, uh, this is a company that has to operate because uh, 20 million Californians needed safe, reliable, affordable, and clean energy every day. And you just couldn't have it not not operating. Uh, the The second thing is the wildfires had been tragic and devastating, and we had to pioneer a way to you know reduce that risk. Um, in many ways, what had happened was we had built that infrastructure for a for an earlier climate, and the climate had changed dramatically around around PG and E. And I could give you statistics on that. But I think there were also a number of challenges with the management that needed to be addressed. Uh, and so it, it was sort of a perfect um, storm of crises uh, that, that were afflicting this company, but you, you had to make it work. Um, I think if you look at the potential for bankruptcies going forward in the COVID era, you've got a lot of uh, businesses that fall into that same category uh, that that are going to be in um, um, severe economic distress and are going to have to work their way out in a in a responsible way because you know anything that like what we're doing now anything that's digital um, is going to flourish during this era that this this era is accelerating trends to move us more and more online but uh, anything that's related to uh, tourism, travel, hospitality, um, and and all the you know fuel and energy systems that that go to support those are going to be on hard times for a while. Um, even even if we get back to eighty percent or ninety percent of where we were in a year or two, um, 
normally if you had a 10 or 20% contraction in one of these industries, people would be, you know, talking about the, the sky falling. And that's our best case scenario. So there will be, I think, um, a lot of restructuring, a lot of reorganizing, a lot of innovating. But what I learned is, you know, during my uh, during my year on the PG&E board, was that that kind of crisis really focuses the mind. And we did some things that were difficult and painful. But in the year that I was there, in just one year, we cut the number of um, uh, wildfire acres that, that, that had been destroyed uh, by more than half. We had no deaths after a, a year in which there had been over 100 people killed by wildfires related to utilities. Um, we had no residences burn. We became much better at managing, you know, how to, how to turn off the power where we needed to, to protect um, human life and, and, and um, residences. Uh, and, and we'll get better and better at it. And at the same time, we managed to uh, work our way out of bankruptcy, which has just, just happened. So in, in a year, you can do a lot. And in 10 years, um, you, can, you can hopefully innovate in a way that makes it sustainable long term and have a better industry. You know, I, bankruptcy is so important to individuals, to companies. We don't think about it in the right way, in my opinion, in this country. One of the founding principles of this country was we don't believe in debtor's prison. Right. We believe in a fresh start. And we put it into our constitution. And it really blows my mind that we have into our constitution that we're going to create you know, bankruptcy laws. But I, I just can't uh, emphasize enough how strong this makes us and that how we're going to go forward in really unique ways. And we hate to see people suffer. And I, I'm not trying to say that people will not suffer because I think they will. But I think we can arise again from the ashes. In Phoenix, we love to talk about rising. <laughs> There's a great poem um, by uh, Yeats, which is... Um, 1916, Eastern 1916. And it was a very similar era to the era that we're in right now. Uh, and, you know, major technological change, huge economic disruptions, uh, a pandemic, um, uh, and all the, all the other things. And he used the phrase, a terrible beauty is born. Yeah. And the notion is we're going through something terrible. Um, but human resilience, um, a, a grit, um, the ingenuity, love, um, and the things that draw you together, those, um, those can create a new and powerful beauty. Um, and just as you said, rising from these ashes. I want to talk about fake news for a second. You yeah. helped start a website and a service called Metafact.io. Tell me about that. I told you, I keep running towards fire. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, um, there is a crying need in at all times in all human civilizations for timely, relevant, accurate, and actionable information. Um, that's how we operate as individuals, um, and as and as democracies, we're lost without it because we don't know what to care about and we don't know 
um, who to elect uh, to represent us, and we can't make good decisions um, as a as a group if we don't have that kind of information. Uh, so I had been um, looking at ways that you could um, do fact checking in a manner that isn't politicized in any way, uh, because right now we're in a balkanized world where people kind of choose their facts. They go to the they, they go to the website, so they go to the cable channels that reinforce their biases and uh, not necessarily hear, um, you know, the, the full story. And so I thought, well, let's go to certain things that are urgent, that people really care about getting accurate information and that are not inherently political in any way and begin there. So a, a, a really extraordinarily talented person who'd heard one of my one of my speeches about about this subject uh, developed a company called metafact.io and the whole idea was to focus on science questions particularly medical questions and then poll people who were experts in the field uh, to provide not only you know what the what their answer was on a particular question you know do vaccines cause autism for example um, but also uh, to allow for a consensus among people who, you know, have different political views from different countries and, you know, all. And, and, and it would give you like 90% agree on this and 10% disagree. And here's, nine, here's why 90% support it and here's why 10% don't. Um, and a lot of times what it would turn out is that the 10% don't disagree with the conclusion. They disagree with how you got there <laughs> or something like that. Uh, and and it and and it's a, a resource for something that people really care about, which is um, you know if if you, if you're trying to decide whether to vaccinate or not, uh, and someone has told you it might cause autism, you really want to know the answer before you get a vaccine. And it turns out that there's a hundred percent certainty that vaccines don't cause autism. You know, across the across the medical community with peer-reviewed studies. You know, that's one of the easy ones. You know, one of the things that I find very difficult with regard to fake news, we have these new news or quasi-news, these new information outlets that have sprung up in the past, I don't know, 20 years, 10, 20 years, Twitter, Facebook, to name the two major ones. And there's a lot of pressure on these private companies to put censorship or not put censorship and it makes me wonder, you know, as we move forward, is fake news threatening our First Amendment rights? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. Um, so let me let me um, uh, sort of unpack a couple of important questions that you asked there. So one is, I don't think there's an intentional effort by many of these platforms to mislead. Um, there are two things that that can occur that end up producing a lot of misleading information. One is um, what seem like neutral principles, neutral algorithms produce um, bizarre effects. So, for example, when you watch YouTube, let's say you're a parent and your child has, you know, suddenly got sores on their hand, foot and mouth and you think, oh, my God, they 
what's happened to them. So you go online and you find a video about hand, foot and mouth, which is a totally benign and very common childhood disease. And once you see the video, you reassured. And then you, you know, up pops at the end of it. You remember there's like the three, two, one coming up next. What it will do is the next most popular video from people who watch this one will come up. And that will typically be something about other childhood ailments that you might worry about. And so you go and look at, at that and it may be something that requires a vaccine. And then you watch the vaccine video. So the next one that will come up will be a really dark video about vaccine, you know, vaccine hoax video. And the reason it will do that is because we are always drawn to our deepest fears. So you want to know what's the thing I need to worry about most. And so people would have clicked on that because as soon as it comes up on the side, um, they're, they're, they're going to be curious. And so they'll have clicked on it. It becomes a popular video. And then the algorithm reinforces that because whenever you go to something about vaccines, it'll refer you to that. It's not trying to push a conspiracy theory. It's just doing its job of going where the eyeballs are. Right. And then, and then that becomes self, self-reinforcing. So, the, so there are neutral principles that produce that. The other problem is you've got people who figured that out and figured out that you can amplify using bots and other means um, totally false stories to accomplish um, diabolical objectives. Um, and so you have not only uh, political partisans, uh, but you have terrorist organizations and hostile nations and lots of other um, uh, uh, a lot of other malevolent actors taking advantage of these digital technologies and pushing disinformation for their own agendas. So you've got both the accidental unintended consequence of digital technology, and then you've also got this intentional abuse of it. And it's going to be fixed, but, you know, these are tools that, that require some tweaking. You know, it's a, a hammer can build a house or it can break a skull, and you just got to make sure it's in the right hands and that's properly regulated. Hmm. Any insight on what we need to do in, in that arena? Yeah, I think that, the, you know, when, when you said there's, is there a potential impairment of our First Amendment rights? Um, I think to the extent that we think that the First Amendment just guarantees the ability of people to say, any damn thing they want about any subject in any way. That's not what the First Amendment protects. You know, the classic example you and I learned when we were in law school was that you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater um, and say, well, that's my free speech. I can say whatever I want, anywhere I want, anytime I want. It's like, no, there are reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. There are libel laws because of the uh, deliberate harm people can inflict on each other by stating knowingly false and malicious statements. Um, there are limitations on First Amendment. And so we need to develop, a, a, I think, a better regimen for dealing with that in the digital space. I think separately, you know, technology can help solve this because, as I said, there's a human need for timely, accurate, reliable information. If we get more websites that actually grade um, um, different platforms and different speakers and can identify them, de-anonymize them, 
so that you know where information is coming from and whether they've been reliable in the past and whether there's an easy way to fact check it. Um, that makes it harder for people to get away with these uh, just ridiculous lies. Yeah. My, one of my favorite lies was about at one point over 30% of Americans uh, believe that Michelle Obama was a man. <laughs> <laughs> and trust me, I've, I've actually met her and um, there's no way she's a man. Cause like no man is that good. <laughs> it's it's that simple. I want to talk about something that you're doing right now. You, there you helped found the Jeff Bly Center on Digital Technology, Security, and Governance at the Flinders University in South Australia. Yes. What are you doing there? Uh, well, it's very relevant to what you and I were just talking about. Uh, just as individuals are, are susceptible to harm based upon false information and other abuses of digital space, uh, democracies are uniquely at risk. And one of the challenges for democracies is that we, we depend on trust. We depend on having accurate information, the ability to process it, think about it, decide what matters to us and what we want to do about it, and then elect people who we believe share our general values and perspectives. Uh, and that all depends upon um, not only accurate information, but also trust in one another that we're, we're going to be good, good citizens. Uh, that we're you know, going to try and solve issues together. Now, in authoritarian countries, not nearly, <laughs> not important to have that information for the government. Um, in fact, they don't want you to have that sort of information because it makes it harder to control individuals. Um, they're looking to use tools for surveillance and to intimidate people, to limit debate, to limit understanding, and to spread whatever message advances that government's interest, whereas self-governance requires just the opposite. Digital technologies have, uh, originally we thought that it was going to be tough on authoritarians because information would move so freely uh, that they wouldn't be able to um, tamp it down. What we've discovered is that they recognize that risk too, and they got to work on building a very elaborate surveillance states, disinformation campaigns, and other things in order to maintain their, um, uh, their, their, their power within their own countries. But then they realized, wait, <laughs> if this can allow us to keep power in our countries, maybe because it's digital and we can just push it out without ever you know, sending a soldier across a border, we can start destabilizing our adversaries. And it's an asymmetrical weapon against democracies. So... What we're focusing on at the center is first identifying and anticipating different ways in which this digital space can be used against democracies, developing a set of policies, procedures, rules, training, education, you name it, um, programs that can be used to assist democracies in maintaining the integrity of information and pushing back against uh, these efforts. Um, also educating a new generation of people to, to step into these roles in government, and also figuring out ways to communicate this very complicated concept in a way that the mass, you know, uh, mass consumer of information um, can digest it, understand it, appreciate it, and act on it. So 
it's it we're taking on a lot and the idea of doing it with flinders is no one country can do this alone so the us and australia are two of the closest allies in the world and if we can figure out ways that we can want, work across two countries then soon it can be three and four and eventually across a lot of alliances with programs of work in the comfortable circle we're in the same space we were in 100 years ago so 100 years ago radical changes in technology it's hard for people to appreciate that between 1880 and 1920 everything was invented from the internal combustion engine to the light bulb to the telephone moving pictures skyscrapers super highways suburbs um appliances elevators you name it all these things were created in span of about 40 years and it fundamentally changed the way people lived and overwhelmed them and a lot of the issues that you see today happened then you had this radical balkanization of wealth so you had you know the roaring 20s where you know a very small percentage of people seemed to be holding all the wealth and lots of other people were feeling left behind and folks in the rural communities were particularly feeling that they had been abandoned uh there was a you know dramatic increases in um in in um uh alcoholism and you know just depression and a number of other things we see mirrored in the opiate crisis you have a um uh you had a lot of abuses um in that space by people in these industries just as we're seeing you know abuse of people's data there was abuse of people's labor um and i think there was a general sense that you know your the the world was getting polluted by this new technology as well and so they came up with a set of regulations that we all take for granted now it's not only you know rules for how you drive a vehicle <laughs> and but everything from wage and hour laws and health and safety laws and um uh conservation that that's when the conservation movement came along we reempowered people who'd been left behind um politically and were frustrated that's when women got the right to vote um that's when uh senators became elected popularly instead of by their legislatures um we had you know to address balkanization of wealth you know we had uh, antitrust laws and yeah. other things like that these these changes now we look back on and say well they were controversial in their time but you know how how do you manage an industrial revolution without those we're going to have to have some clever um regulations that don't inhibit innovation and technology but harness it uh and make it work for everybody um, right. i think that's the that that's the future i really jeff i really appreciate you coming on the show sharing your insights and spending so much time with me and my listeners will appreciate it and we look forward to seeing you again oh well i was a real honor bob thank you for for having me on and look forward to seeing you when uh, when we can close the social distance folks thank you for listening this has been the podcast is that even legal a discussion of what's legal just as a reminder this is not legal advice for you this is general information and it's meant to be educational if you have specific legal needs don't be afraid to reach out to an attorney to get good legal advice attorneys are lovable they're fun they want to hear from you see you next time Thank you.